0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It really is a privilege to be with you all today, to share the word with you. I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Father, as uh, Brother Brandon has just read in that wonderful psalm, our iniquities have been marked in the body of your Son for us. And there could be no greater display of the outpouring of grace upon us, a life-giving fountain than in the body of your Son on the cross so that he might bring us to God. Lord, help us by your Spirit to see what John and the other apostles saw as they beheld your Son. Help us by your spirit, Lord. Give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our understanding that we may know what is the hope of your calling and what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ I pray. Amen. I was speaking with Brother Doug earlier this week, and I said, you know, you know you're a father when the farmer in the dell is ringing in your head all day. You know, after you become a parent, you inherit this repertoire of nursery rhymes <laughs> that uh, you just never thought you'd memorize. But... And then my wife was like, you know, The last time you preached was when Joshua was in my stomach. And of course, most of my opportunities to share the word are at funerals. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, I am a hospice chaplain. And so a great majority of my opportunities to minister the word are at funerals. And it's a great privilege. You know, when you set yourself to study... A book of the Bible, uh, you begin to learn that there are certain themes that work together within a narrative that give you an impression of what the author is intending to communicate. But in John, in a very real sense, he makes so explicit what he wants us to see, what he wants us to understand and believe about the, about the Son of God. You know, unlike the synoptic Gospels... John has generously given to us the interpretive keys to his book. What I mean by that is he's given us a purpose statement, hasn't he? And he's also given to us those glorious 18 verses in the first chapter of John. Those first 18 verses that really introduce you to some of the major themes that he really spends a lot of time unpacking for us throughout the entirety of the gospel. So wherever you find yourself in the gospel of John, if you're careful, you discover that both John's prologue and purpose statement work together to shed profound light on your study of the gospel of John and mainly on your savoring of the gospel of John. So keep this in mind as we Look at our text together this morning because it's going to come up again towards the end of the message. There's a connection that I would like for us to observe in this morning's passage. Uh, you'll notice in your, your morning's bulletin that we'll be focusing primarily on John chapter 4, verse 10, just one text. And while this connection can be drawn not only in the Gospel of John, John has a peculiar way of drawing these connections so that your belief in Jesus will be fueled by ever-increasing affections for Jesus, so that you will treasure Christ more than anything. John wants you to see, he wants us to see, what he and the other apostles saw when they beheld the Son. He wants your belief in the Son to be energized by delighting in and savoring the enfleshed eternal Word of God. So I want to read the text with you first. I'm going to offer just some basic contextual highlights. I'm going to make note of that important connection, show you where this connection occurs elsewhere in John, and then we'll come back for a deep drink of the glorious realities that John has for us. Now, uh, Pastor Kyle's already preached on this text, so take what I'm setting before you as just supplementary and complementary to that. I'm going to begin at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized... But his disciples. So we left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now we had to go through Samaria. So we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritan women. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Amen. I will not take too much time unpacking the context here, but by way of review, if you recall the prologue, you'll note that John really hasn't kept us in suspense about who Jesus is, has he? The first time you read this gospel and you're expecting to learn about the life and ministry of the Son, you soon discover that where the synoptics in many ways crescendo to the realities of Jesus' identity, especially in terms of his divine origins, John's gospel has a crescendo shot right through, doesn't it? From beginning to end. You know, there's no suspense from beginning to end so that when you come to this text and Jesus says, if you knew who it is that asks you for a drink, if you're like me, you're thinking, if you knew. Oh, if you knew that the creator of this well and this water is asking you, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John 1.3 So it was a surprise to the Samaritan woman that a Jewish man not only was speaking with her, but dealing with her in such a way that presupposed something entirely different than the assumed relationship had been among the Jews and the Samaritans of that day. And yet we are not surprised he's speaking with a Samaritan woman. John also said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, those not born of the blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but of God. So it's one's relationship to the Son that determines one's standing with God, isn't it? Not one's tribal connections or bloodline or theological heritage, but one's reception of the Son that determines one's standing with God. John 1.29, the Baptist would declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only those of Israel, but those of Samaria too. So while there's a real suspense and shock, even for Jesus' disciples, about what he's doing and why he's speaking with a Samaritan woman, John has already given to us a framework to understand what is happening. So now that we've just briefly highlighted some contextual features, let's focus in on verse 10 together. And I'm going to highlight that important connection uh, which I mentioned at the outset of our message. Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Now there's a connection here that Jesus wants the Samaritan woman to see. And it's the connection between who Jesus is what she needs most, and what only Jesus could give to her. You might even say the gospel is embedded in this text alone, if you take a careful glance. Now there are some who take the gift of God here to correspond with living water, and that's okay. I think it refers both to Jesus himself and the living water that he gives but I won't spend too much time getting into the weeds of that, although I'd be happy to discuss that with you after service. But more importantly, in essence, Jesus is saying, there's a thirst that transcends what an infinity of wells could ever give to you. You need it, and you're looking at him. It wasn't simply that the Samaritan woman was clueless as to who Jesus was but she was just as clueless as to what she needed most and notice Jesus doesn't respond in offense or in a condemnatory fashion and later on he's not going to even entertain or discuss those socio-political theological divide between Jews and Samaritans but what he does say in effect is this who i am what you need And what I have to give you makes everything else peripheral. Now there's a very important phrase here I want to focus on just for a moment. Because I really don't think you can appreciate the depth of this verse or this entire chapter without understanding something of the biblical antecedents of this phrase. Okay, And that's the phrase, living water. This phrase doesn't occur a whole lot in the Old Testament, but it does occur once in Zechariah, twice in Jeremiah, and once in the Song of Solomon. And we don't have the time to explore all of this phrase's occurrences, but we will explore one occurrence that I think is important for our passage today. And that comes from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. This particular chapter of Jeremiah... Chapter 2, it's 37 verses chock full of contrast between what the Lord has done for Israel in His grace and what Israel has done continually in her sin against God. The context is largely an oracle of judgment against the nation of Judah and their idolatry and their compromised allegiances to the Lord. So I'm going to begin at verse 12. This is Jeremiah chapter 2 verses, 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, for our purposes, notice the contrast here. What is God indicting Judah for? They've exchanged Yahweh, the eternal fountain of life-giving water, who has both created them and sustained them for broken pots of clay that cannot even hold water. You know, the contrast really gets across the tragedy, I mean, the insanity, and unnaturalness of such an exchange. I mean, really? You're exchanging the source of all life, a fountain that overflows with His very own life for you, for clay pots? The living God who gives life and breath to all things, He offers Himself to you, and rather than gratefully receive Him, rejoice in Him, enjoy Him, you exchange Him for some kind of pitiful broken imitation. Isn't that the essence of idolatry? You ascribe something to an object that can only be ascribed to God. And isn't that precisely what Jeremiah says Just two verses back in verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. They exchanged God for a relentless pursuit after hollow and empty realities. You know, this... When I wrote this next comment here, I I was fearful that it would kind of make things superficial. But when you become a parent, you start thinking of applications from being a parent. And all I could think of is like when you give your son this cool car and he wants to play with Tupperware. (laughs) That doesn't do justice to the realities that Jeremiah um, is getting across. But, you know... It's like you've given the greatest thing you can give and there's this preoccupation with the thing itself rather than the one who gave it to you. Now does your heart leap with joy to know that Christ has taken your broken cistern and in exchange given you what he's offering to this Samaritan woman? an ever-flowing fountain of life and grace that an eternity of cisterns can't hold. Now let's connect this to verse 10, right? That's the whole reason we were going back to Jeremiah 2, because, the, because of the phrase, living waters. And I think there are really wondrous things to behold now that we come to the text with just a little bit of a lens that's Nourished by that Old Testament text. Now, on the one hand, the phrase "living water" isn't itself enough to say that Jesus is quoting Jeremiah two thirteen, but there's definitely an illusion here. This was an Old Testament phrase associated with God on more than one account, and both Jeremiah two thirteen and John four overlap in remarkable ways. That's not really immediately re- apparent. But but you're going to see that connection, just some parallels between uh, Jeremiah two thirteen and John four ten. You know, just as the Israelites forsook God, the fountain of living waters, by exchanging the riches of His grace and provision because of their allurement, you know, to these promises of the false gods in the surrounding nations, so also Jesus is approaching a woman who stood in a theological heritage that forsook God by the rejection of His revelation and the worship that He prescribed. You know, Jesus would eventually get to the broken cistern of her adulterous relationships. That's going to happen. But here's a Samaritan woman that so distinguished herself from the Israelite faith, and yet she's no less guilty of having exchanged the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that can hold no water. The fountain is standing before her. And all she sees is a strange Jewish man not acting like most other Jews did towards Samaritans. Now, one thing uh, that I really appreciate about this uh, series that Pastor Kyle has been taking us through He's, he's been wonderfully drawing our attention to the instances of irony in the Gospel of John. You may remember that. And I suspect this is one of those instances, isn't it? In Jesus' estimation, this Samaritan woman, like, not, not unlike all of us apart from grace, she was clueless as to her most fundamental need and what constituted true worship. And ironically... Jesus gently provokes her with Old Testament language about God from a book that the Samaritans rejected. Occupied, right, with her task of getting water from this well, she approached the very one who the Torah bore witness to. Isn't that what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47? For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus offers his very self to this woman who had exchanged him for other things. And what's her response? What you have to offer can't be better than this well here, can't it? Can it? I mean, don't you know that Jacob gave us this well? We, we fundamentally, we as the reader know what the Samaritan's woman fundamental issue was. John puts it this way: the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. She couldn't see him for who he was. She couldn't wrap her head around how it is that he had something to offer her that was greater than this well that had some theological significance attached to it. And that's all of us apart from grace, isn't it? We're blind to the realities of God. We can't comprehend the light that has come into the world to give light to us. And isn't it fascinating how God can give something to people He he gave them this well, and yet they become so absorbed into those things that sooner or later they drift off, forsaking God altogether. You know, it's no wonder, I, I didn't think of this immediately, but it's no wonder why John can end his first epistle this way. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So let's take a halfway summary. So we saw how the metaphor of living waters is applied to Yahweh himself in the Old Testament. And here you have Jesus saying that he himself is able to dispense this living water. He's not reluctant to give it. But he comes to one who's far off. And he says to her, come and drink. So the connection between who Jesus is What this woman needs most and what Jesus gives becomes all the more clear, doesn't it? So, now that we've just absorbed a little bit from verse 10 and the three connections that are present in the text, I just want to take you to two other places in John where I think these connections occur in the gospel. So, you see, it's more of a recurrent connection that arises. So first is the account of Jesus and Nicodemus just one chapter back. And uh, at the outset, there's a bit of irony in this account, too. Because, you know, Nicodemus opens up the discussion with this kind of... I mean, this is how I read it. With this kind of grandiose, a kind of high-nosed... That's, that's how I see it. That's not an infallible way of seeing it. But, you know, Rabbi, you know, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God... Uh, for no one who can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. You know, he's confident. He's coming with his assessments. He's confident about who he thinks Christ to be. And Jesus just responds immediately with, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. In other words, Nicodemus, not only do you have no meaningful sense of who it is that you're speaking with, but you're also clueless as to your need you must be born again. If you want to rightly see the kingdom realities that I'm making known to you, there's no other way. You must be born again. You may be the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, but if you want to truly understand what I have to say, it must be revealed to you and the Spirit blows where it wishes. And so here you have this connection between who Jesus is, what Nicodemus needs most, and what only Jesus could provide to him. Nicodemus needed new birth from above. And only Jesus could make known the mysteries of the kingdom. Right? He said that because he's ascended from heaven. No one else has ascended but he who descended. And only the Spirit could give Nicodemus the life necessary to see and believe. Now the second account where this connection occurs is of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. And this account actually shares a lots, lots of similarities with the account of the Samaritan woman. I mean, of course, there's differences of occasion and the metaphor of bread instead of water, but there's, there's similarities here, and I, and I encourage you, in your personal study and reflection on this passage, consider John 6:27 alongside John 4:13 4, and 14. And just pray for the Lord to open your eyes to the wonders that are there. I'm going to read John 6.27 and then John 6.35 and then an observation about that connection. John 6.27 reads Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. And now John 6 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so here again, you observe these connections. Who Jesus is, what man needs, and what only Jesus could provide. Man needs more than bread because his need goes much deeper than just hunger. They saw bread to fill their stomachs, didn't they? But they did not see the bread of life who could forever satisfy their empty souls. And we know Jesus is the bread of life and he offers to give himself to you. So here's some closing principles or principles forward slash applications. So so the way we're going to do this is a little bit differently than I would before, but John is just that... It's, it's, it's a simple gospel, but it's a profound gospel, and he kind of takes you to task when you're wanting to extract some things from his gospel. So I'm going to extract some principles for us, and I'm going to do it in light of the purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 31. Okay? You recall the beginning of the message. Remember I said keep in mind those interpretive keys that John gives to us. Okay, so I'm going to read the purpose statement first. John 20 31 says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know what that means? This might not strike you as profound, but that means John 4 10 was written so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Contrary to what some people think, the Gospel of John is not just for unbelievers. It's for those who now live to know Him and want to drink from the fountain. So, the first principle is, Jesus wants our believing in Him to include seeing Him as all-satisfying. Don't, don't make too little of the metaphors that are there in the text, right? They are metaphors, right? The fountain of living waters is a metaphor, but don't be reductionistic in how you understand that. There's, there's something there. I mean, on a superficial level, he's talking about thirst, isn't he? So, John, John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14 says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see a fountain of living water when you gaze on the Lord? When you pray to Him, what do you see? When you have a need, when you're praying for a brother or sister, when you're weak, when you're emotionally drained, or maybe you're under a season of depression? Do you see the One who's given Himself to you as an ever-flowing and overflowing fountain of grace? Or do you begin to build cisterns? Listen to what Isaiah 41, 17-18 says. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. Where do you run? Where do we run when we're thirsty? If it's not to the sun, you'll be parched with thirst. It'll be a dry wilderness. And that's what it is. That's exactly what it is for those who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Your life is a dry wilderness filled with broken cisterns, if you're an unbeliever, you know, just to play a little bit off Calvin's quote where he says, you know, our hearts are an idle factory. If you're an unbeliever, your, your heart is a cistern factory. And it will leave you empty. And it will leave you condemned. And it will leave you without hope. But where do you run when you're thirsty? Where do we run as believers when we're thirsty? Newer Friends? Different jobs, more vacations. I'm not against those things. I have a job. I have friends that I'm grateful for. I go on vacations. But don't mistake them for the fountain of living water. You know, when you have moments or seasons of dissatisfaction, have you ever become of aware of what's occupying your heart most in those moments? Whatever it is, if it leads you to dissatisfaction, it's not the fountain of living waters. It's a broken cistern. You know, in my studies, I stumbled upon Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 28. And here the Lord explicitly connects idolatry with dissatisfaction. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and were still not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, yet even with this you were not satisfied. Dissatisfaction is an endless hole we can easily get lost into. And you know why? Because its roots go deeper than anything else this world can offer to us. So the problem isn't that Jesus is not satisfying enough, but that we fail to drink enough of Him. Right? Where do you go when you're thirsty? When you sense dissatisfaction welling up in your heart, go to the Lord. Pour out your soul before Him. See that He's eager to pour out this fountain for you. Plead with Him to open your eyes afresh To his glory, his beauty, his all satisfying presence. So that's that's the first principle. Jesus wants our believing in him to include seeing him as all satisfying. Here's the second principle Jesus wants our, this is a little lengthy, Jesus wants our believing in him to trust that the fountain he gives can carry us in our suffering. Because he is not a hired hand who runs when danger comes, I'm going to say that one one more time. Jesus wants our believing in him to trust that the fountain he gives us can carry us in our suffering, because he's not a hired hand who runs when danger comes. John chapter 10 verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not a shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, what does he do? He abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus will never abandon his sheep, even in their greatest trials and sorrows, because he's the Good Shepherd and when his and when his hour had come he would demonstrate that in the greatest way possible i lay down my life for the sheep you know when you read just as a side note when you read this gospel or any of the other gospels never forget that everything jesus says and does is in view of calvary that's never an aside it's never out of his purview That'll really bless your reading of the Gospels. Everything he says and does is with a view to the cross. In your darkest days, the Good Shepherd has us firmly grasped in the palm of his hands. Listen to what he says My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. So you can trust, brothers and sisters, that the life the Son gives to you, this fountain of grace, is sufficient to carry you through your deepest valleys because He's already carried the greatest of all suffering for you in His body on the cross. Fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God and I will still give thee aid. I will strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. So the second principle was Jesus wants our believing in him to trust that the fountain he gives can carry us in our suffering because he's not a hired hand who runs when danger comes. He's the third and final principle. Sound doctrine alone cannot ensure you will see a fountain of living water when you consider the sun. What is your primary springboard into the Word? And I include myself in this. Because I love theology. I love, the Word, I love studying the Word. But what's your primary springboard into the Word? Is it to drink from the fountain? When you read John 4, are you primarily checking off theological boxes? I think one big temptation, especially for our more Western, um, current, you know, this this current expression of reform-based faith. I don't think our temptation is to devalue sound doctrine. But to so absolutize the importance of it that affections and passion and treasuring of Christ are relativized or seen as abstract. It's ironic how that can happen. And ironically, it ends up obscuring the heart of Reformed theology altogether. Listen to what the Apostle John says he and the other Apostles looked and saw when they laid their eyes upon the incarnate Word. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Do you see glory when you get into the Word? Or do you marvel at theological categories? You know, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Kyle covered the beginnings of John chapter 7. Do you remember verse 15? In verse 15, we were told that the Jews marveled at his teaching. You know, what that simply means is they were filled with a kind of wonder and astonishment At his teaching, they marveled, but they did not see glory. You can marvel and not see glory. Not even scrupulous, Scripture-based assessments can ensure that you will see what Jesus wants you and I to see. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. John 5, 39 through 40. Even the Samaritan woman was guilty of this at one point, wasn't she? You're not greater than our father Jacob. That was her theological lens. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say people should worship in Jerusalem. That's the necessary place to worship. Do you do that with Jesus? Do you do that with his word? Well, the Samaritan woman was doing that with Jesus. What does Jesus say to her? If you knew who I was, you would not be asking for a lesson in biblical theology. You would have your hands stretched out and you would say, Lord, I've been thirsty all my life and I'm ready for a drink. So these are two closing quotes. Uh, I don't usually share quotes, but I thought I'd find quotes. So uh, this first one comes from F.F. F. Bruce. The soul's deepest thirst is for God himself, who made us so that we can never be satisfied without him. The second quote comes from St. Augustine. Desire only God, and your heart will be Satisfied. Let's close with a word of prayer. Well, Lord, I, I can't recall exactly what Job 36, 26 says, but I know it's something about your greatness and the fact that we don't know you. But in light of this passage of Scripture, there are There are glories untold that we have yet to discover by Your Spirit as we drink from Your Word, Lord. May our believing include seeing You as the fountain of living water. And Lord, we know we can't do this of our own accord understand that uh, we're prone to wander we're prone to hew up for ourselves broken cisterns would you forgive us for that forgive us for not making much of these glorious realities and Lord I know there are There are people here that may not know you savingly. But I do pray that you would shine forth in their hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That they would see you for who you are. They would see you as the one that they need. And that you are the only one that could provide them with their soul's greatest need. Lord, we're grateful that you're faithful. You're a faithful shepherd to your people. And you're faithful to carry us, Lord, in every season of our lives. Because you're a faithful shepherd, you don't flee when danger comes. You will never leave us nor forsake us. So, Lord, as, as we come to your table this morning, may our hearts be filled with the fact that our, our very gathering itself and the very table itself are blessings that, have, that flow out to us from the fountain of grace that has been given to us. Because You came. You lived perfectly. You are, you are as we are, yet without sin. And as that precious psalm that Brother Brandon read... Lord, our iniquities were marked as though they were the sons. He was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. It's because of that, Lord, that we could celebrate the Lord's table with great joy because we have a fountain that will never run dry. We thank you and we pray these things through Christ. Amen.